0: Watching people grow is a joy. As if you've been in ministry a long time like I have, just watching lives change is what it's all about, and watching Pastor Jim and Angela uh, take the journey that they've taken from salvation to baptism to being filled with the Spirit to called into ministry to being on our staff, uh, and then planning this church and seeing it today. One of my calls this week to your pastor will be time for a third service. Your church is too full. Not that that's a bad thing, it just means time to divide and multiply. And I know that, you know, that means you've got to preach another sermon on Sunday morning, but let me just give you words of encouragement. Suck it up. (laughs) I used to do five services on Sunday. I don't want to hear any moaning out of you. And, you know, his relationship with his wife is so non-pastoral. And they say things, it's like, you didn't say that in front of people, did you? Like this morning, he called her an M&M. And I didn't know if that meant peanut or. Yeah, the moment. Yeah, the moment. And uh, she's blushing. I bet you blush a lot, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, I blush for you. Uh, You know, one of the things that I have observed in life as you go through the seasons of ministry and the calling and the developing and preaching and building a congregation and leaders and watching lives change, at the end of most people's lives, they're no longer worried about the size of the crowd. They're just worried about that person that they can affect. That's why Jesus ended up just spending time with the disciples the last night. If I can get them right, my ministry will carry on the ministry of the Lord will carry on that's why Paul at the end of the journey didn't write to the Philippians or the Colossians or the Romans he just said Timothy my son in the Lord I think the more you walk with Christ the more you get focused on an individual not a crowd and you know being able to be involved in Pastor Jim's life and uh, watching him achieve educational achievements far beyond what I've achieved and start a church in a very difficult time and pastor at a difficult time uh, is an honor for me to be involved with you still. It's an honor at my age to still be anywhere. And uh, and it's an honor to watch you. And so we honor you today. And there were those of you that left Cornerstone as many other thousands of people have. <laughs> and you came with Pastor Jim to start a church. And no no man does it by themselves. It, it It's a uh, it's a work of of relationship, and so I honor those of you that are founding members of this church, and tell you those of you that have come along the journey, uh, you'll be somebody else's leader. You'll be here as a foundation when they walk in the door. We all have a part to play and a and a place to be. You know, in this time that we live, having our priorities straight is important. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was invited to go to the Super Bowl in Dallas when they had the Ice Bowl, actually, and. Obviously, I couldn't afford to buy one of those $3,000 tickets, $1,500 to $10,000, whatever they're paying some company did. And the guy said, would you go with us, Dallas to go to the Super Bowl? I said, yes, but I'm going to go to church Sunday morning and preach, and if you go with me, you have to go to church. So I went to Calvary Temple Church in Irving, my pastor, and preached for them. And so sitting there in the Super Bowl that night, and I'm in a pretty expensive seat, and I'm thinking, man, hot dog, I've arrived. And the Cowboys obviously weren't playing, which was the only disappointment, but I was at least in Texas. And... Uh, that's where I'm from and so I'm sitting there and there's a seat between me and the elderly man beside me and I looked over at him and I said whose seat is this because it's abnormal all the seats are filled d- and he said that's my wife's seat and I said oh I'm sorry she couldn't make it and he said no she passed away and it was kind of sad I thought oh man you know most of us you know if my wife died I'd leave flowers on the pen at the church or something and uh and I thought man and I said, Well, did y'all have children? He said, Yes, we had three sons and a daughter. And I said, Really? None of them wanted to come? And he said, Well, they couldn't. They're at her funeral. <laughs> and, you know, it's important in life that you keep your priorities straight. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> you ought to ask the pastor about the other one I told him in the office. Would you stand? Would you stand? We're going to read the Word of our Lord together. I, You know, I still carry an old-fashioned Bible. I know a lot of people have their Bible on their iPad or their iPhone, but there's just something about looking at highlighted pages and feeling the paper. And, uh, you know, if Jesus had wanted the gospel on technology, he would have come last year. And uh, that he came when they had, you know, some something to write on. But I want you to open your Bible to the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse number 25. Today I'm going to Take you on a journey, and I want you to stay with me. We're going somewhere, and it's going to seem like I'm going into history here in a minute, but I'm not. This is all relevant to the times in which we live. You know, out of everything you need a pastor to do, you don't need a pastor to speak to the past. You don't always need a pastor to speak to the future, but you always need a pastor to identify what God is doing in the present. Because if you can identify what God is doing and do that, you're going to be all right. Judges chapter 21, verse number 25, the Bible says it this way, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Father, I pray your blessing on the service today. God, there are people you want to speak to in this message and people you want to challenge and move and raise up in different ways, there are people, God, that you want to accept an assignment and to know their purpose, and there are people you want to give hope to. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do it all as only he can in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. You know, if you went to Genesis, in the first chapter, God weighs in. He finds a world that is in chaos and darkness, and He turns on the light and creates order. Everything God does happens after order is restored. If you've ever looked at your Bible, all the miracles were preceded by creating order. The miracle of creation was a creation of order. Before God made man, God created order. When Jesus had the multitude there, before He fed them, He had the disciples create order. He set them in groups and had them sit down. Order is incredibly important to the miracles and the plan and the blessings of God and the provision of God in our life. So anything that is out of order is not of God. That does not mean that everything that is in order according to what we call order is of God because His ways are not our ways. There was no king in Israel. There was no authority in Israel. There was no absolute in Israel. And so because there was no king, every man did what was right in their own eyes. That word, their right, comes from the root word ethos, which is the root word ethics. Judges began as a great nation led by great people. But once the greatness of the leaders were rejected, the people did what was right in their own eyes, and they destroyed Israel's organization, Israel's religion, Israel's relationship with God, Israel's authority and power and blessing. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, it always ends up in the destruction of a civilization. We live in crazy times. And it didn't start now. It started in the early 1900s when the theory of evolution began to creep in through every institution in our world. Most people don't know it was Harvard University that the president of Harvard became an evolutionist, and he decided that everything should be changing. And so we've got to stop studying constitutional law and start studying case law, which has never been done. And if we study case law, your interpretation of this law, and I can see what you said, we can slowly change the constitutional interpretation to relevance to current culture. The interesting thing about evolutionists is they're all hypocrites. They're all hypocrites. I don't know about you. I didn't believe in God. I didn't go to church as a little child. But when I got to school, they taught me the theory of evolution. What's the fundamental truth about evolution? Survival of the fittest is what's best for the species. It's important that the weak are weeded out. That's the bottom line of evolution. So our institutions, our schools, our politicians, our whatever they are, when it came time for the week to be weeded out, they screamed shelter at home. No teacher that is taught evolution should not be required to go to the classroom. You taught it, now either live or die, but practice what you preach or shut up. Now, see, we don't like to, you say, well, Mario, do you believe we shouldn't shelter? I'm not talking about that. I don't want anybody to die. But if I believed in evolution, I would have thought, well, that's just what's best. You know, I was raised in a public school. Guess what, we had Ten Commandments on the wall. I didn't believe in God. Never thought about God. Those are pretty good life rules. They're pretty good ethics. I was raised in Texas. We were taught there was us and the rest of the country. I took 12 years of Texas history. You said, why are Texans like they are? Because they know who they were. But they made me say the Pledge of Allegiance to all the United States. People from California had to be included in New York City. From de Blasio to Newsom. And they made me take my hand and put it over my heart. And they actually had me say, under God. It didn't matter if you were an atheist, a Muslim. Uh, it didn't matter what you were. You were going to see those Ten Commandments, and you were going to say that pledge. And where I came from, they actually had prayer over the intercom and actually talked to God. And they told us our we came because a Creator gave us certain unalienable rights. Then they actually told us who the Creator was. And guess what? It didn't hurt anybody. But when you remove the foundation. Now everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And now we have people saying, well, you need to be tolerant. No, I am not going to be tolerant. It's not Christian to be tolerant. God is not a God of tolerance. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience. He's a God of long-suffering. But He's not a God of tolerance. Tolerance indicates support. C.S. Lewis said it this way, tolerance is the virtue of a man with no convictions. What do we say? Well, I have my truth and you have your truth. First of all, you don't have any truth and I don't have any truth. You don't have any truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, my word is truth. So the only truth you can have is if you believed in Jesus and you read your Bible and do the word of God. That's the only truth there is. All the other stuff is your opinion, your ethics, your ethos. You know, there's actually a definition of marriage in this book. You know, lying is a sin. There's a a whole definition of morality. Being drunk is a sin. Let me take it a little deeper. Being lazy is a sin. They called it being a sluggard. The day I drove past one of the professional panhandlers in Nashville, and I want to have compassion on people that can't work, but I'm not going to help people that could work, that spend their more time just getting money from those of us that do work. So I made a sign, and I held it up. Would support you, but COVID keeps my window up. (laughs) I just (laughs) love to do that. Can't help you, buddy. I mean, just, just we don't get to decide what's right and wrong. We don't get, uh, you know, I, I got on a plane Friday to fly back from Charlotte to Nashville, and the lady said, hey, I moved you because uh, there's a family that wanted to sit together, and one of them was on the inside, um, and you, instead of sitting on this side, you're sitting on this side. Do you guys say, no, that's fine, I don't care. Well, I, I recognized the two lesbian girls that were sitting over there because they had been in the lounge, and they'd put on a pretty good show in the lounge. Can you imagine if heterosexuals were as flamboyant as, as the gay community? I'm oh, I'm so glad I'm a heterosexual. Isn't this great? We're just free to be a heterosexual. I love my wife. I love women. I love men, whatever the case may be if you're a girl. that That's a bad edit. You have to think about how people will edit that. And they're over there doing their thing, and I'm thinking, I got moved for you two to be together. It would been better if God put me in the middle of you and put a cross in the middle of the ditches. And the girl started talking to me because I had my peanuts out. I've learned that it takes me about two hours to eat a pack of peanuts, a half of peanuts at a time. And you can take your mask off as long as you're eating. So, you know, God, I don't want to be a glutton, but I'm trying to breathe. And she said something to me, and I said, and I did it respectfully, because you know what? Bashing people does not win anybody Jesus. I've done that. It doesn't work. You've got to love them. I said, are y'all married? She said, no, we identify as married. I thought, shoot, I identify myself as the pilot. Why won't they let me fly the plane? Uh, You you don't get to self-identify. You were done when you were identified when you were born. The doctor never held anybody up and says, I have no clue. (laughs) It's a boy or it's a girl. I mean, what happens when we start trying to make people feel good when they're being bad? We corrupt a society. That's where Judges is. Everybody's doing what's right. Everybody has their own truth. If you went over to the two books over in your Bible to 1 Samuel, you'd read about a priest called Eli, and he has two sons that are priests also, but they're messed up. They're not godly. They're living in sin. They're bringing corruption in the temple. And because the leader tolerated corruption in the house, he became corrupted in his own soul. What you tolerate will infect you. So he lost his way with God. There's a woman that comes in. Her name is Hannah. She's barren, and she's married to a polygamist husband. Her life is pretty messed up. And she's praying at the altar for a child. She's just weeping. She's broken. She's, she's just crying out to God. And Eli is so backslid, he doesn't know the difference in a person praying and a drunk. He says, woman, you're drunk. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm praying. And he's so embarrassed that he doesn't know what God is doing anymore. He blesses her. Now, the good news is, A man of God that is backslid still carries a mantle until God removes it. So she got the blessing. She has a child called Samuel that she takes to the temple at about five years of age and only sees him once a year. Pretty strong story. When Samuel's growing up, the voice comes to him, and he he goes into Eli's bedroom at night, and he said, You call me, he said, I didn't call you. Eli's so messed up he doesn't know God's talking to this young man. Takes him three times. He says, next time you hear that voice, just say, here am I. I I think he just didn't want to be woke up anymore. And God calls Samuel, this child of a barren woman married to a polygamist, raised without a mother in the house of a backslidden priest with two corrupt sons. Go back to the middle book between that and you go to Ruth. Ruth is an incredible book that we read, but we don't read it the way it was written. Ruth is the son-in-law for, for uh, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi is a Jewish woman. Her and her husband and her two sons moved from Israel to to Moab when there was a famine in Israel. Her sons married Moabite women. That doesn't mean anything to us, but it was a reproach to them because Jews only married Jews. Not a racial issue. It's a religious issue. And for them to marry a Moabite woman was, was just messed up. And it's kind of like if you don't want your kids to marry those women, don't take them around. Boys are going to pursue women. That's what boys do. And we can talk about it. We can politicize it. We can meet to it. We can do everything. And I think there's some things that are definitely wrong with men. But it all started with Eve. It's always the woman's fault. (laughs) Naomi's husband and both sons die. She decides to go back to Israel because a woman without a husband or a son to provide for her was going to be cast into poverty or prostitution uh, horrible circumstances back then for ladies. And she says, I'm going back to Israel where my kinsmen will take care of me. Orpah, that one's daughter-in-law, decides to stay. That's a whole other story. She ended up giving birth to Goliath. Ruth decides to go with Naomi. And Naomi said, really? My husband's dead, my son's dead, and you're going to go back to Israel with me? We read that, your people should be my people and your God should be my God, and think, man, that's awesome, that's noble, That's man, that's taking care of your mother-in-law, that's buying into family. But what Naomi heard was, I'm going to get back to Israel and I've got to have a Moabite woman with me, and that's going to be not a good experience. And so she changed her name when she found that out to Mara, which means bitter. I'm no longer Naomi, my name is bitter. I am bitter, I've lost my husband, I've lost my children, and now she's a permanent reminder of my shame. All three of those stories happened at the same time in history. The nation's messed up because the church is messed up. And now Naomi's messed up. And Ruth is not the person you would have picked to fix the problem. But Ruth gives birth to a young man by the name of David. Her lineage is David. who brought Israel back to its glory days. See, we wouldn't have picked her. That's the Moabite woman. She's a widow woman. She made her mother-in-law bitter. But how do you fix a nation? You raise up a young man named Samuel to bring revival to the house, a fresh anointing, You raise up a young woman named Ruth to give birth to the answer. And when the anointing meets the answer, victory comes to a nation. We're in the middle of that. We're in the middle of crazy time. We live in the most insane time in the history of America. However, it's really not that new. Let me take you around the world. In 1738, England was in the middle of something they called the gin craze. A new form of alcohol had come on the scene. It went beyond the wine and the beer. It was hard alcohol, and they became addicted to it. And as it grew, vendors began to walk down the street, and they would push their carts down the street, and they say, gin for a penny, the straw is free. And London became extremely addicted. They became a city of alcoholics, a nation of alcoholics in England. But London was particularly infected. And in that infection, the most affected people were mothers. Mothers' lives were so stressed out. You know, I meet these young ladies they said, I've got a child and I'm a stay-at-home mom and, you know, my husband's gone all day and I'm, at the, I'm with my child all day long. You got one kid and you don't have to work? You are blessed. I left my wife home with triplets and stayed at work as many hours as possible. <laughs> you say, well, didn't you want to be a good husband? Self-preservation is my first consideration. i got to live through this season. It was horrible. I had to keep that kid every night by myself in a different room. Some people say, you know what it's like to be a single parent. Yes, I did. I worked all day and kept one of the babies all night because he was on a different sleep schedule than the two girls. For nine months of my life, I didn't get to sleep. Went to work every day. I was a working dad. Gen craze. So many times we don't get honest about where we are as a society versus where the world has been. Everything's not right in America between men and women. But we're a long ways from where women were in 1738 they had no rights their daddies gave them to a husband they were abused and misused and mistreated and not respected and not loved correctly by and large there were exceptions and their lives were so miserable that mothers became the most addicted segment of society to gin they called it mother's gin or lady's delight at one point Almost 75 percent of all children under five died, or were neglected and malnourished, in the city of London. The number of fetal birth syndromes wa- birth was off the chart. The number of children born with significant handicaps was incredible, and it looked like the English Empire, the British Empire, was going to collapse from alcoholism, poverty, homelessness, violence. It all happened. As with anywhere drugs and alcohol become legal and accepted, evil is released. Our founding fathers and our lawmakers from years past had some things right. The taxes on cigarettes and alcohol, you know what they called them? Sin taxes. They recognized things that weren't right were going to cost society more than things that are right. 1798, the western frontier of America was three places. Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama. America could not get past the Mississippi River, not because they couldn't get over the river, they couldn't get past the corruption in those three states. The the level of alcoholism and poverty was unbelievable. The homelessness led to incredible violence. Highway robbery, most people trying to cross through were robbed, and the women were raped, and people were killed. It was unbelievable. And so most normal people said, I'm not going through Kentucky, Alabama, and Tennessee to try to get west because we're probably not going to get to the Mississippi River river before something horrible happens to our family and so America was stuck in its westward expansion and some people say well it should have been stuck without America having all 50 states we would not have been able to do what we needed to do in World War II to have the world we have today America has been critical to the history of the world in 1967 in our blessed nation a group of young people went to San Francisco And it's never recovered. And they became what is known as hippies. And their message was love and peace. They wore peace signs. They had great fashion, bell-bottoms. Oh, for the good old days when men's pants would go over their boots. What they talked about in the news media declared, this is going to be the summer of love. became a summer of incredible violence and riots, much like we're seeing today. Martin Luther King was assassinated. The Zodiac Killer showed up. Charles Manson created a group of drug-crazed, demon-possessed people. Out of that hippie movement, out of the orgies and the new STDs that came on the scene, violence towards women went off the charts. Neglected children in those communities became more manifest. Young girls were abducted in that area and taken in hostage to new levels of child prostitution it became a destructive movement in america it became a movement that was divisive and challenged public health and even while all that was going on the liberal news media called it the summer of love but it wasn't love for most of the people i look at all those crises i just talked to you about and you would say london is over america is done our next generation are lost because those hippies became the models for the younger kids because of the news media making it glamorous. But God always has an answer. In 1738, while the gin craze was going on in London, there was a young man by the name of John Wesley that he and his brother Charles had the Holy Bible Club at their college, and they had a list of all the things you can do and not do. And they had the rules of what it means to be a Christian. And they, they ground those rules in. If you keep our rules, you're okay. And if you don't keep our rules, you're, you're not going to be there. But at the end of the day, John decided to come to America. And he was going to be an evangelist or a missionary to the United States American Indian. And he went to Savannah, Georgia. And he discovered there were no Indians left in Georgia. They had all moved to Oklahoma or wherever they moved to. And so he decided to pastor a church. And he tried to bring his religious rules into that church And the girl he fell in love with rejected and married somebody else. And as the spiritual leader of that community, he decided to ban them from receiving communion, which basically was to kick them out of the body of Christ. And back then, the civil courts and the church were not that separate. They took him to court, and he was convicted. They were going to put him in jail. And he fled back to England. Now he's a man that is rejected, broken, and ashamed. And he feels like his ministry life is over. I'm done. That's on, I can't go back to America because they'll put me in jail. I told everybody I was going to go win the Indians to Christ. I didn't win any Indians to Christ. I didn't even meet any Indians. But he goes to a Moravian Bible study, which is a German Bible study, and there he hears Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And as Martin Luther had rewritten the theology coming out of the Catholic Church, that no longer are we saved by rules and ordinances and liturgy, we're saved by grace through faith. As he heard that for the first time, something happened inside of him, and the warmth in his heart and the burning in his heart led him to being born again. He became a Christian. He was saved for the first time in his life, not saved by rules, But saved by the Lord. He became so radical for Jesus, he determined his philosophy is, if I set this pulpit on fire, they'll come watch it burn. And he began to preach like a man of fire. And he didn't mean to start other churches or a new denomination, the Methodist Church, but he did. And what he did, he began to create little Bible studies. And those Bible studies began to grow. And they turned into little churches. And he had so many of them, he had to raise up circuit pastors and circuit riders to take care of the little churches. And he created a whole other way of getting the gospel out. And as that church began to come alive and the churches in every community, every block, every area of the city, all of a sudden the revival broke the spirit of the Gentry and the gen craze went away and the God craze came up and lives began to be changed. How God had a rejected preacher who rejected himself, disqualified himself. God said, I'm going to use you again. You may think you're done, but you've only been through the learning experience. Now I'm going to take you into a place you've never been. And he set the church on fire, and that's what broke the gin craze. When the church came alive, the world had to bow down. Out of his revival came a young man by the name of Francis Asbury that was 17 years of age that was one of his circuit riders and he decided to go back to America and to fulfill what John Wesley had actually started. So he came to the American frontier, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama, and he began to go into those Appalachian mountain areas and down in the villages and the valleys, and he would get a few people saved. He'd start little Bible studies, and pretty soon those little Bible studies turned into churches, and pretty soon he began to have circuit riders, and the Methodist church was coming alive all through that. At that time, America was stuck, but all of a sudden, his revival came, something supernatural began to happen. God began to do something in one group. they had twenty thousand people in one meeting, and they came from all over, and they were there three to five days and the people would gather over here to listen to a preacher and they 'd gather gather over here to sing some songs and they 'd gather over here to to have some intercessory prayer and they, they, they wasn 't all of them in the same arena. it was all of them in groups, but they were all together seeking after God. And when they would do the last day where they would serve them communion, the people would fall out slain in the spirit and demons are coming out and lives are being changed. It was called the Cane Ridge Revival. And out of that Cain Ridge Revival something unique happened according to Vanderbilt historian Paul Conkin. He said the greatest revival and spiritual movement in the history of America was the Cane Ridge Revival because it's what broke down the barriers for people to move from, from Virginia all the way through the past the Mississippi and get all the way to California. The Cambridge Revival is what gave America the ability to become the America we know today. Those hippies in 1967 were a mess. We would have said, let's put them in jail and let's get uh, D.L. Moody. Let's get Spurgeon. Let's get Billy Graham. Let's have somebody change the spiritual environment, those great men of God. God said, no, why don't we just use them? It's like, (laughs) they've got all kinds of problems. God said, yeah. He turned the hippies into what were known as Jesus people and made Jesus cool again for a whole other generation. He took those people off straight Asbury Street that had destroyed a city, destroyed a neighborhood. Middle class people had to move out because of the debauchery, the filth. God took those people that everybody was running from and used them as a light that all the young people began to run to. Who God uses never makes makes much sense. In the early 1900s, America was again in a place of spiritual stagnancy. God looked around, who's he going to pick? He picked a black man with one eye that was illiterate by the name of William Seymour and took him to a place called Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And out of that Azusa Street revival, led by an 80-year-old black, one-eyed, illiterate man, God gave birth to, to the Pentecostal movement, which gave birth to the charismatic movement. You think about the impact of one life. Today there are 279 million classic Pentecostals in the world. There are 305 million charismatics in the world. That means there are 584 million spirit-filled believers in the world today. And you say, I don't know what God is doing. Can I tell you, God has enough people to do anything He wants to do, even if He starts with one. The people God chooses don't make any sense. I'm going to take Abraham and make him the father of many nations. That story's not in there so that a bunch of old people go take Viagra and try to have sex. That story is in there so that people know you can be fruitful in every season of life. You're going to go get an 80-year-old murderer on the backside of a desert had not got nothing but a stick and call him to set the people of Israel free. You know, if you're Moses, you say, hey, hey, hey. You know, Batman's got Robin, Superman's got, uh, you know, the suit and a phone booth to turn into Superman. You know, Iron Man's got a suit. What do you got? What do I got? Just use your stick. uh, Hey, are you talking about going to Egypt with just a stick? He said, don't worry about what you've got. Worry about where you're going. I'll take care of you. You may not think you have what it takes, but you have everything it takes. What did he say to the woman when he said, What do you have in the house? She said, I just have a little oil. He said, well, let's just use that. See, God is able to take what we throw away and say, that's all I need, including people. David, your dad doesn't even think you can do it. not even going to bring you in. Gomer, Hosea, the preacher, Hey, you know what my will for your life is? No? Go marry a prostitute. Do what? Just go down there. It doesn't matter which one. They're all the same. Just pick one. That's where Santa Claus came from. He went down there and went, ho, ho, ho. (laughs) Send any letters to your pastor. (laughs) See, you know, it's like... God, your will for your life, remember when he had the prophet lay out naked in front of the city? And after the halfway point the prophet said, what do I do? He said, just turn over. Like, what kind of ministry is that? What God uses doesn't make sense. Who God uses doesn't always make sense. Can you imagine the angel standing around? Jesus Back, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. It's time to get the gospel out. The Jews, are doing, the 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 disciples are doing pretty good at getting to the Jews. But nobody's getting to the Gentiles, and God's looking at He Said, "Got to get somebody to go to the Gentiles." And the angels, and big old angels, standing up, looking, and said, "What you going to do? What you going to do? Who you going to pick?" God said, "How about him?" You know, they said, "We, you must be. We must not. You must. It looks like you're pointing at that guy called Saul, that Pharisee." He said, "Yeah, him." He said, hey, God, you know, I know you know all things, but maybe you forgot some of the things you know because that guy don't believe in Jesus who's sitting right here. And he's killing people that do. God said, okay. It's not like I can't fix that. Bam. You're down in the dirt on the Damascus Road. Now you're at a street called Straight. Now you've been caught up to the third heaven and seen things, and then God torments him, said, hey, you know, all these things you saw, you don't get to talk about them. That, that, that's one of the most cruel things I've heard of in the entire Scripture. You know, he didn't do it with a woman because they wouldn't have been able to do it. But it, the button. <laughs> i got to tell you, the woman, I just told my girlfriend. No, I, I mean, I'm into the third heaven, I can't tell you. I'll just pick him. God's standing on the throne of heaven right now because the church is praying. Churches are coming alive. People have realized we need to get closer to God because there's a lot of things that indicate time is coming to an end. And so God's looking, and you're saying, Hey, God, who are you going to choose? Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Jim Kubik. God said, No, 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 no. I think I'm going to look over there in that Antifa crowd. What? We don't want no Antifa people in the kingdom. And God said, well, you didn't want Paul in it either. Okay, y'all don't want that? Let's go over here to the white supremacist. No, no, God, not them. They're racist. See, what we see people as is not what God could turn people into. God has an answer. And if we'll wait on the Lord and stay faithful Bible says, let those that suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in just doing what is right. Not what's right in my own eyes. What is right. See, the greatest challenge is not saying God could pick them or God could pick them. The greatest challenge to you is understanding God has picked you for something. While you were in your mother's room, womb. The Lord handcrafted you to solve a problem to reach a people. You may say, Maury, I'm not called to a crowd. Number one, you don't know that. But number two, could you just be called to David? At the end of the day, Paul just said, I'm going to work on Timothy over here. I don't have to reach everybody, but everybody's called to reach somebody. Pastor Jim gave you the opportunity this coming Saturday to be a difference maker. You say, well, I can't walk two miles, then go feed the homeless. Well, you know, I just don't feel comfortable down there. You would if you were crucified. When you don't feel comfortable serving, you hadn't got on the cross recently. Everybody can't be at everything. We understand that, but I promise you nobody's called to do nothing. God didn't bring you into the kingdom to do nothing. He has a purpose for your life. And I think the number one reason people don't accept that purpose is I think you know things in your past. And shame and guilt are strong. The new book I've got coming out with is I analyzed what I believe are the ten greatest mistakes of my life. I tried to prove I was bigger than my shame and guilt rather than just accept the fact that God dealt with it and when you're trying to prove something you don't get there spiritually you don't get there god's way you may get there but there's a better way you got to let some things go the areas where you feel like you failed it's okay the areas where you're ashamed it's okay the areas where you feel guilty it's okay God is able to deal with those things. And I'm not saying you ought not to have been ashamed at some point. You ought not to have been guilty at some point. But you can't live in that. We have a God of grace and a God of redemption. And I think so many times we think, well, I've disqualified myself. God doesn't change his plans because of your conduct. If he did, he had just killed Adam and Eve and made new ones. But he had a purpose for them. When Israel went astray, God didn't throw up his hands and say, I'm going to pick another people. I'm going to pick Moabites. He never changed his plan for Israel, the Jewish people. He had to correct them. He had to let them suffer the consequences of their conduct. But he never changed his plans for them. When you came into the kingdom of God, there was something in you that said, I'm going to be a difference maker. I've had a difference made in me, and I'm going to make a difference. But somewhere along the journey, You've let that die. Or you felt like God can't use me like that. This message is tell you we don't need to worry about what's going on in Portland or Seattle or Minneapolis. We don't even need to worry what's going on in Nashville. I only need to but worry about what's going on right here, right here. If I get this right, the rest of it is going to take care of itself. So can I get you to bow your heads for just a moment? Just bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I thank you for the incredible privilege of being in this pulpit today and sharing with the people here. And I thank you that we've learned from the Wesleys and the Asburys and the hippies that turned into Jesus' people, from the redemption of Saul to Paul, from your grace for the Apostle Peter who failed you on the night you're being betrayed, that, God, you will always restore us and raise us up to our design purpose. You didn't disqualify Peter, but you used him on the day of Pentecost as a reminder that your grace is greater than our failures. And God, I pray for people in this room that their hearts would come alive with a hope that you would use them again and that dream they've given up on would come back. I want your heads to be bowed and your eyes to be closed. And if you're at home you can answer this the same way. If you'd say, Maury, I I need my dream resurrected. I I need to forgive myself so I can let God lead me into what He's called me to. And I've allowed guilt and shame or insecurity or even inferiority to limit me. But I want the God that is able to do all things in me and through me to touch me fresh today. Would you just slip up your hand? Those of you with hands up, just stand up. I'm just going to pray for you where you are. Just stand up right where you are. If you're at home, Let them know online that you will need prayer. Somebody will call you later on. They'll communicate with you right now. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for the people that are standing, for the people who responded online, that not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit would be applied to their life. And the Spirit that was within them would stir a passion to run forward, not back, to look ahead, to look up, not down. That you would let them know that your grace is sufficient where they've been weak to make them strong. That the helper, the Holy Spirit, will lead them and guide them from where they are to where they dream of being. God, we take authority over every spirit that would come against them. Rebuke the spirit of condemnation and judgment. God, uproot the words that people have said that have stuck in their minds and let your word flow freely through those valleys. I pray you would lift them up and use them. In this generation at this time, these are for these are your people for a time such as this. I pray you would do it in Christ's name. Amen.